Hey, what's up, guys? This is Anna Matea, founder and CEO of Merge. And I'm Andrew Kay, founder of K-Media. You're listening to Startup Circle with Steve Fortang. The podcast that gives you insight into the minds of South Africa's most innovative entrepreneurs and businesses in the South Africa tech sector. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Startup Circle podcast series with me, Steve. You can find out more about me on Instagram at istevza or keep an eye on www.rentcroft.io backslash podcast for more information about the show and the future guests. Startup Circle South Africa was born out of my love for South African startups. Throughout my time in corporate and tech scenes, I've heard too many people strive for their businesses to become like the next Uber, Airbnb or Facebooks of this world. While those are great businesses, I believe that there's local talent that's just as good. And it's with this in mind that I put together the Startup Circle series for South Africa, where we showcase local businesses, their learnings, and the entrepreneurs behind them. Today we're speaking to GJ, the founder of Custos. Custos has built a watermarking technology that in conjunction with the Bitcoin blockchain protects digital media from online piracy. That's a mouthful in itself. Protecting digital media from online piracy with watermarking technology and Bitcoin. But everybody who's ever created content will know that piracy is a big issue. Your content being consumed and enjoyed by people who haven't paid for it. Custos and their online watermarking technology has the solution here. So without further ado, let's hear directly from GJ. A man that I've been looking forward to speaking to all week. Today we've got GJ, the founder of Custos on the line. Or on the podcast, there's no actual physical line anymore. Uh, GJ, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. So if you log into your website, there's big text in red that says, we use watermarking technology and Bitcoin blockchain to protect digital media files from online piracy. GJ, what does that actually mean? What do you guys do? Okay, so uh, our clients are people uh, creating valuable media. These could be films, it could be audio, it could be... Uh, electronic books or confidential documents, and they don't want these to leak. They they want to be able to send them to the individuals that bought them or need to see them or listen to them uh, without worrying that those recipients are going to share it with people that shouldn't see it or shouldn't have access Mm. to it. And the way we protect the content is uh, we put in that word that you uh, stumbled over, a watermark inside the Mm. digital media. So if you, uh, you know what a watermark is, if you take a 100 rand note from your wallet and you lift it up to the light, you, you see a little, little face, a little image in the, um, in the paper. And that's, that's the watermark that identifies that piece of paper as a valid banknote. And forensic watermarking is where we do that for digital files. So suppose you're a movie reviewer for one of our clients and they send you uh, the latest cut of their very expensive and very precious new film that's going out to the cinemas in two or three weeks' time. They don't want you to to share that or to upload it to a, to a piracy site. So we put in a digital watermark inside that movie. It's inside the color and the brightness of the pixels. And the special characteristic of this watermark is it doesn't just identify you as the recipient. Um, it also contains a bit of cash. Mm. Uh, a little deposit that says this deposit shows that the movie is still in your control, that you didn't leave it lying around, that you didn't share it with with other people. And the only way we can put a cash deposit inside a digital file is uh, through the magic of Bitcoin and blockchain and cryptocurrency. Mm. Mm. 
Gigi, I think this is a fascinating solution. You, you're definitely solving for a problem that, that certainly has existed in, in South Africa and economies around the world for a long, long time. Oh, yes. But, but talk to me a bit about the dream here. When did you start developing Custos? Was this something that you personally always wanted to do? And, and how did you eventually come to the point where, where your solution looked like what you just explained to me? So, so five years ago, I did not see myself starting a company. Uh, I was uh, I was an academic. I was associate professor in electronic engineering at Stellenbosch University. Uh, there, my one co-founder and I started something called the MIH Media Lab, which was a research lab funded by NASPERF, uh, working on things like content protection and media distribution and gaming technology and set-top box tech and security around those devices and things like that. So we were, our minds were very much in the space of how the media landscape is changing and how to protect content in, uh, in media distribution. When we became interested in, in blockchain and Bitcoin at that stage as a technology, and we were very excited about how Bitcoin and its blockchain can be used outside the traditional financial sector. Uh, because our, our hunch was that when you're dealing with a fundamentally new technology, something that does something in a really new way, uh, its best applications are also going to be really new things that we didn't think of before because we didn't have the capacity to do it. Uh, so we started spitballing ideas uh, around how we could, could combine our interest in media distribution with the way Bitcoin and its blockchain works. And it was literally one of those... The, the invention that turned into our company was literally one of those water cooler moments. Well, actually, it was around the, the coffee machine in the, in the media lab where, we, where my co-founders, Herman and Fred and I, were talking about how you could protect content using, uh, using Bitcoin. And we suddenly stumbled on this idea of embedding the wallet directly in a piece of media and using that as a way of uh, giving the recipient a little bit of vulnerability, something something monetary that they need to protect to keep the content mm. safe. And w- we quickly wrote up the idea. We we saw this as something new, wrote it up as a patent disclosure. Uh, it was with our tech transfer office that afternoon. We met with the lawyers a couple of days later and so, suddenly had an invention. Yeah. We were inventors of, of something that seemed new, seemed to have commercial value. And we started exploring business opportunities, bouncing this off people in the in the industry. Uh, got a little bit of funding from the uh, Technology Innovation Agency to turn the idea into a prototype and an early product. And before we knew it, uh, we had people showing commercial interest as as clients. We spun out a company, and I ended up spinning out with wow. it. And I haven't looked back since. So, so five years ago, you, you, you come up with this idea. Um, you, you, you've got the vision for, for what this business looks like. You know the pro- that, that your, your, your product or your service is, is solving kind of a need. How long between the time that it takes you to come up with kind of what to do with the technology and delivering your first kind of uh, service or product offering to market? What, what was the time lag between that? Uh, so, so that's also quite interesting because if you, if you invent something, and the solution is clear in your mind, uh, one's always tempted to think that it's it's going to be a very quick road to making this a product and getting it into a, uh, into a bank customer's hands. We spent about one year after first inventing this technology uh, just 
building it into something that we could potentially sell to someone. We started talking with potential pilot clients. And 18 months into that process, we signed up what's now our longest standing client. And that's still regularly using our, our platform on a nice web-based portal that allowed smaller filmmakers to protect their content and, uh, and send them out to reviewers and buyers. Uh, something that's now screenercopy.com, which is one of our, our flagship products. But even that very first minimum viable product that we had in the hands of a paying customer uh, looked very different from what we have today. Mm. It wasn't something that was scalable. Um, it was sellable to very early clients who had an urgent need for a solution like this, but it wasn't yet ready for a, for a larger market. Um, and in the time span since then, a considerable amount of time went into getting this tech ready to scale, signing up customers across the, across the world, figuring out how different markets and different ways of using the product and the technology work uh, so that we're at the point now where we're really starting to, uh, to scale out our customer base. And, and you, you said uh, earlier on, you said that you double-hatted. You were, you were working somewhere else while double-hatting and, and kind of building the solution out yeah. in, in this job. During that 18-month period that you were, you were figuring out what Custos looks like, were you fully invested in the business or, or were you still in the double-hatting phase? Um, I, I was in the double-hatting phase for a, for a long time. So the tech was invented a bit more than four years ago. It was October 2013. Uh, we started operating as a business unit inside the university about three, four months uh, after that. We were actually starting to talk to customers. We had some funding from, uh, from TI in the bank and we, we started operating. Uh, but I was still full-time lecturer at the at the university, and uh, I was my initial idea was building this out on the side and sort of spinning it out as a as a side product or a side project while I continue with what I considered my main job. And I had a chat with somebody who ages ago used to be one of my students, but since then really has become somewhat of a mentor to me. A chap called Melanie Bear, who now runs Offizen and and Fire ID. And we went for a long walk and he mentioned, look, if, if this is going to be a startup, if it's going to work, you, you, don't, you don't make startups work on, uh, on a part-time mm-hmm. basis. If, if you really want something that's technically complex, that has a market that's global and, uh, and a market that's complex, if you, if you want all of these complexities to get together, it's going to take uh, a full-time, more than a full-time mm-hmm. effort. Uh, and I think that was when the seed was first planted that... Um, Perhaps the best thing for me to do is to to spin out with the company and and leave academia and, and do this full time. So I want to move on to to talking about the tech and and I think as you 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 rightfully explained in very kind of simple layman's terms early on what Custos does, but I think there's merit to 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 making it a little bit more relatable and and specifically me a few months ago when when Jacques Poe released his the, the the president's keeper book. I received a copy of this book via WhatsApp. Um, I was part of a group and it was a sports group where somebody dropped a copy of this book in and, and, and all of a sudden I had Jacques' media um, or, or content on my phone and I could read it and essentially I wouldn't be paying for it and then he wouldn't be earning a cent. Tell me then how if uh, Custos's solution was, was implemented, as I understand, on that file, uh, how, how would it all work from there? Um, uh, I'll, I'll explain that in a moment, but I, I want to take a step back on, on what you said there and just reflect for a moment how 
absolutely amazing this era is that we that we're living in. That that somebody can write a bombshell of a book, um, and that there's this explosion of interest in in what the book says, and 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 people wanting to read it, and being able to get access to that information and start start reading. The digital era um, has made it possible to get access to information, to learn, to spread, to spread the news, to spread information in, in a way there never was before. And it's created the demand for a book like that in a way that there never was before, which is great if the author can get his due for the efforts of writing the book. Uh, then this digital demand is absolutely fantastic. But the flip side of that is if people struggle to get hold of the information they want because it's a physical book and the bookstore has run out of copies or they might not be close to a physical bookstore or they don't know how to buy an ebook, or they don't have a device on which to read an ebook, uh, people go and find content in other places. And we saw that with President's Keepers. It was a matter of days after the release when the PDF started, started circulating. Um, and that's what we want to prevent. So in the case of, um, say, the president, uh, President's Keepers was, uh, was published as an ebook, uh, and we do ebook protection through our partner in, um, in London, uh, each copy of that ebook that gets sold to legitimate customers would carry uh, a watermark. So it, it might be an EPUB, it might be a PDF, and hidden inside this file in a way that's impossible to see, difficult to detect, and impossible to remove without damaging the text as well, is hidden this information about who the original recipient is. And that information also contains this 50 rand or 100 rand or 200 rand deposit inside the uh, the book to say that this is your this is your copy and that you need, you need to take care of it. Should you share this book? So, for example, in your in your file sharing group or your sports network social group, if somebody were to give you a book with that watermark inside it, we make it very easy for anyone in that file sharing community to see the money, to take it out, and to do so completely anonymously. So you'd be able to make yourself 100 rand richer just by running a scanning tool on a copy of the book that you receive. Nobody will know that you, the person doing the detection, but we'd immediately be able to see which of your friends was the original recipient, somebody who went to Amazon, purchased the, the ebook, and then took that ebook, copied it, and redistributed it. And that's what that's what our clients want to know. They want to figure out where these leaks are, who the rotten apples are, who provide the digital content to the file sharing networks. Because if you if you can close those holes, it makes it more difficult for anyone to get access to a pirate copy of the uh, of the ebook and people then are willing to uh, to pay for legitimate content and that means that 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 authors like Jacques can can earn their livelihood by by doing their writing that film filmmakers can mm. fund the next project through the revenue they generate through their ticket sales and and that's what's important sustaining creative digital industries so so embedded in this ebook is a is a pocket of rands that then get revealed to the holder of the ebook um via once they've plugged it into a scanning tool am i understanding correctly is that what you're saying that's that, that's essentially right yes so then once i've received the 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 ebook if if of course i, I now I know that it's definitely pirated because I've, I've got media or content that i haven't paid for 
is it up to me then to think, well, actually, I'm going to run this through the scanning tool to determine whether there's actually a pocket of value in this or to figure out that actually the, the, the author in, in this case didn't use uh, the Custo solution and, and, and thus there's no way of tracing it? Yes, and it's, it's up to you to, to do that scan. And uh, from our perspective and our client's perspective, we don't need everyone in a, a file sharing network to, to scan for the watermark. Mm-hmm. We need one or two people that know how to do it and to extract those uh, those deposits because the moment that happens, we see who's responsible for the leak. And to take an example from the film industry, we've been protecting most of the big South African movie releases over the past uh, almost two years now. And since our South African clients started using our uh, our film distribution platform to send out their screeners to reviewers, we haven't had a single leak of, uh, of, of a movie screener. Uh, now, screener is that preview copy that reviewers get. And it, it used to be a pretty big headache to the, uh, the movie producers that those screener copies get, uh, get lost. But the moment that it's distributed on a platform that ties the identity of the recipient to the, uh, to the film, people are more careful. Yeah. They, they take care about, of that digital content because they're not anonymous anymore if something does go wrong. And that's, that's all we want. We want people to play fairly and to respect each other's uh, valuable and expensive uh, content. And then at the end of the day, should this media get distributed, what one of your team, and, and I suppose these are the bounty hunters that, that, that I read about, then pick up this content on, and are they physically able to see the snail trail of everybody who's opened it and passed it on? No, we, we just detect the original infringer. Oh, with you. So if Jock sends out a copy of the President's Keepers to the Sunday Times book reviewer to, uh, to review, and that reviewer leaks the copy, we're able to trace it back to that reviewer. And, of course, that individual does not want to be identified as... Mm. Uh, as a source of piracy, because he or she won't get uh, copies of ebooks or copies of new books in in the future, and that's that's their livelihood. Mm. So it's just if if things are open and visible and things going wrong uh, can be disclosed, uh, people behave more responsibly and and treat things more fairly, and that's that's what mm. we do. We we help things be more more open and fair. I want to move into talking. Just touching on the product development side of things for for a little bit, I've certainly never heard of a product like this ever before. I think I've been made aware of other tools and services that have been used to try and combat uh, privacy, but but never something like this. Around the world, does stuff like this exist? Or are there other products out there that, that, that look and feel similar to customers that perhaps exist in an American market? Uh, nothing, like, nothing like this. It's, uh, we do have competition. So uh, in content protection, our competitors are companies that do digital rights management, for example. So if you if you purchase a, a Kindle ebook, there's digital rights management built into that. You can't get that ebook out of the Kindle app and read it on your read it as a PDF or, or something like that. And digital rights management tries to keep content inside some kind of container and not let it leak out. But unfortunately, it, it always does because you, you just need one savvy person to figure out how to get it out of that, uh, out of that mm. box or to re-record it in some other way for it to be distributed. But meantime, everyone who's playing fairly with the media gets punished by not being able to 
copy or backup or access their content in the way they want to. So Custos provides a much friendlier alternative to digital rights management mm. where you don't need to keep things contained. On, on, on screen and copy, our reviewers can download the, the movies to watch later if they, if they want to, but it still has that watermark in there. On the, on the other side of the business, uh, competitors are people who try to uh, enforce anti-piracy behavior uh, after something has leaked. Uh, so if you're on a, uh, if you regularly pirate movies and torrent movies, uh, you might at one stage through your internet service provider uh, get a threatening letter from a large mm. studio saying, we know that you, you you were downloading this file and we're going to sue you, uh, which they very rarely do because it's, um, it's very difficult to prosecute on the basis of looking at somebody's yeah. IP address. But you do get companies that specialize in that, that serve the cease and desist notices, that do the takedown notices from websites and try to contain the, minimize the effects of piracy after it has mm. happened. But we fit into the middle in between digital rights management and the search for content in trying to help our clients figure out where the leaks exist in their distribution networks. Um, and before this, we use this combination of forensic watermarking and cryptocurrency. Forensic watermarking is something that exists. We do have competitors there as well who know how to also put information inside video or inside ebooks, uh, but none of them use cryptocurrency as a way of finding those leaks uh, because you, it, it doesn't help if you write somebody's name inside a, a, a movie and that movie gets pirated, but you never discover where it's been pirated. What we do is through our bounty hunting network, we pick up within minutes after something leaking that it's, it's up and who the responsible person was. So, so I know you've got some some presence from a product point of view in, in offshore markets, specifically um, the USA and the American region. And and as you've just said now, there there are no direct competitors to you. Uh, so so let's talk for a moment about the experience of taking a South African product that that perhaps people have never heard about um, into an American market. How, how's that been? But, uh, that was something that from the outset we realized was was going to be a challenge. It's we we realized we're sitting with a product that you can use in different types of media that's relevant across the world, and we're sitting here at the southern tip of uh, of Africa in a relatively small market. So when we invented the tech, we, we were lucky to get a, a grant from the Technology Innovation Agency that allowed us to do that early product development, but also allowed us to jump on a plane, fly to Hollywood, and spend a month there just figuring out how this industry works and how the market works and how to sell into that market. We attended the anti-piracy summit in Los Angeles on that trip, speaking to other uh, anti-piracy tech vendors, speaking to people, uh, content producers, movie studios, ebook publishers, trying to figure out what, or what the problems and the needs are and where our product needs to fit that market. And we also use that opportunity to really leverage our, our personal networks to try to get introductions into, um, into big media companies. And we were lucky enough to, to get that uh, through our academic networks and through the, the Bitcoin communities networks. We managed to get in that at right places in the in the movie industry and started striking up conversations there. I want to move into talking about the big I word that's on 
on top of a lot of the the founders and, and tech entrepreneurs' tongues in South Africa, and that's that's investment. So so with expanding into to a new market and with with seeing your product uptake in a in a, in a new space, uh, I'm, I'm sure that investors were were very interested and and you were also interested in, in in getting investment. As I understand, you guys have. You've been invested into by, as you said, it was the Technology Innovation Agency, I know, investment company um, or, or venture capital company, Innovis as well. And and probably the most well-known is the, the Digital Currency Group. The, I think it's a, a VC based in, in, in New York. This is some great work for an SA business. I think m- many companies and, and software solutions who are literally coding their platform out in their bedrooms right now, I've got ambitions of doing just that. You've also said that you got investment of a pre-prototype. How did that all work? So, so you self-funded at the beginning, and then at which stage did you start talking to investors? And and then what was the investment process like? So, the, uh, the first thing I think any founder needs to figure out is whether whether you do need investment. And many founders would advise that if you can bootstrap, do that. If you if you can somehow very quickly get something together that you can put in the market, you can get some revenue and use that revenue to. To build out the product and and the business, uh, go for it. But unfortunately, the the nature of the invention we had was one where we needed we knew we were going to be in a technical development process for a long while, and that there's also two sides to our to our market that we're going to have to deal with media companies on the one hand and bounty hunters on the other hand at the same time, and that we we need to be very careful in how we scale these up simultaneously. Uh, so we realized we, we're going to need capital to uh, to do this. Um, the one great thing we have in uh, a country like South Africa is availability of institutional funding. Um, because we were a university spin-out or university invention, we could do quite a bit of our initial development inside the university environment, and uh, we used our... Uh, position in the university to get access to a very specific university-focused seed grant from the Technology Innovation Agency that had almost no strings attached. We got about a half a million rand grant just to take this idea and turn it into an, uh, an early product. And in that first year that we ran with that grant, we started doing that, building the product, building the prototype, getting pilot customers on board. But we also used it to start raising additional funding to to really get the business going uh, properly to the point where we can start getting some revenue. And that was hard work. Mm. The the proverbial uh, kissing many frogs was certainly true for us. We spoke to every investor that we could get in contact with. Uh, We pitched locally. We pitched overseas. We were in Silicon Valley. We were in Hollywood. Phone calls everywhere. And in the process, discovered the the investors that that ended up uh, finding a good match with us. So, Inurfis is the technology transfer office of Stellenbosch University, and they did the at that stage somewhat unusual thing of directly investing in a in a spin out company, which is which is fairly rare. Universities don't usually invest in startups, but in this case, again, it was it was technology they knew. It was a company they uh, they knew and trusted. The other investor was a local angel investor, uh, and that's another reason why I think when raising funding, especially here in South Africa, speak to many people. Somewhere out there, there's going to be 
an individual with a little bit of capital that's really interested in taking this entrepreneurial journey with uh, with a new group of entrepreneurs. And we, we happen to find our angel through one of the networking events in the launch lab in Stellenbosch where we where we based. And then the digital currency group, uh, that's through introductions. Uh, mm-hmm. And especially if you're speaking to overseas investors and if you're speaking to investors in the States, uh, they are unlikely to give you the time of day if uh, if you just cold call them. So fortunately, through our South African entrepreneurial network, we had references into uh, into DCG, and they made introductions for us, said nice things about us to the associates in DCG, and we uh, we they invested a little bit in us. They they uh, our smallest investor, but they invested on us on the back of two telephone calls. Mm. That was it. Um, and then uh, simultaneously, we got proper R&D funding from the Technology Innovation Agency. So they matched everything that our uh, equity investors put in. They gave us uh, a type of a debt instrument for uh, an equal amount, purely focused on the uh, R&D that we're doing in, in Christos to develop our product. I know a lot of startup founders say that you should go and bang down every door you find uh, from an investment point of view and, and be cold calling and be emailing and, and be doing all those sorts of things. And I, I've personally never met anybody who has found investment um, off the back of a, a cold email per se. And I know a lot of founders spend a lot of time putting together cold emails and when, when arguably they should be investing more time into building their product. Tell me, tell me this, if you could do it all over again, would you pump the referral network more or, 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 or do you think that there would be some value eventually in going the cold calling and cold email route that would possibly lead to investment at a later stage? I'm very skeptical about, about cold calling simply because we, all of us are busy it's, uh, and so are the investors. Being able just on a, on a phone call or an email to quickly look at that and decide whether this sounds interesting is, is practically impossible. Whereas if somebody's willing to vouch for you and give a good referral for you, that, mm. that makes the introduction rise uh, above the noise. And it also allows you to very quickly uh, discover matches between what you're doing and the stage where you're at with the investment mandate and interest of the of the investor because you really have somebody in between doing that matchmaking for you and then uh, at a later stage in the business once you start once you start selling and you've built a brand uh, it starts flipping the other way around and you start getting um, almost cold calls from from investors where people start contacting us to say hey with the VC firm of this big company or we uh, UK-based investment house, we read about you, we heard about you, uh, let's set up a call. Mm. And uh, that's, that, that's a nice switch to see, to see your brand build to the extent where, where people start reaching out to you. But early stage, do those referral networks. Mm. And that's why I think a startup doesn't start the day you have the big idea. A startup starts through your entire lifetime in building up relationships with uh, with interesting people because those are the people that are going to help you make the right connections later. Those are definitely famous words that I'll quote you on after this, <laughs> this podcast, GJ. Final question is is from an investment a landscape point of view between what you experienced offshore in the States and, and, and South Africa. There's a big stigma out there that says 
any idea could he get invested into very easily in Silicon Valley because there's so many VCs all in, in, in the Bay Area. Talk me a little bit through your views on, on, on investment in South Africa. Do, do you feel that in South African investors are as risk averse as, as the media and speculation says they are? Um, it's, it's an interesting question because I, I think it is difficult finding very early stage VC in South Africa if you have a type of technology or a business that's in a different mold from, from something that's, that's familiar. So I think in many of our conversations with, with VCs at the early stage, if I were a VC, I'd, I'd have seen it as a risky prospect because it's an entirely new type of technology speaking to a market that doesn't really use this kind of thing at the moment. So there's just from the pitch deck, little to make it seem like a, like a surefire success. And I think the way the startup and investment market is structured in South Africa at the moment, VCs see enough business pitches that follow familiar tried and tested business routes, but with a new product in a new market that I think significantly de-risks the, uh, the investment. And if you speak to the VCs, they'll say that they don't, they don't have trouble with deal flow. They, they find investable companies. Uh, but I think uh, certainly in our case, if you, if you move away from something that's easily recognizable as a, as a potentially successful business, it becomes much more difficult to, to raise funding. But that being said, uh, it's access to institutional funding, like government funding, uh, or even in our case, university funding, is, I think, much easier than it would be in, in the States. GJ, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, at the end of every show, I like to wrap up with what's called a speed dating round. And as much as I, I'd hate to ever find you across the table from me in a speed dating round, um, <laughs> I, 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 what we like to do is I've, I've got five or six questions. Uh, I'm going to toss them out there, keep your answers kind of short and conversational, and we'll take it from there. Are you, are you ready? I'm ready. Cool. Inspiration. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Uh, I never have trouble getting up. Eagerness. I want to get things done. I want, I want to do the stuff that energizes me. And building something from scratch is certainly that. Night owl or early riser? Uh, it switched. I used to be a night owl. I got kids. And then I discovered that the quiet hours of the morning are amazing. So I often get up at around 4 o'clock to, just to get the day going. What frustrates you? Uh, inefficient meetings. Next question. Globally, talk to me about one person that inspires you and, and answer the same question from a local front. Uh, globally, uh, it might not even be a person. Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, the strange individual that invented Bitcoin and that nobody knows who that is. It certainly <laughs> changed my life. I would give him slash her slash them a hug anytime. Uh, and locally? My co-founder, Fred. Interesting. Next question. Uh, at the Startup Circle, uh, we, we believe that leaders are readers and readers are leaders. So uh, talk to me about the last book you read. Uh, actually, on my, on my audio, audio book player right now, uh, From Impossible to Inevitable by Aaron Ross and Jason Lemkin, really just about how to think about sales. And that's the, that's the space we're in with, uh, at the company right now, trying to figure out how to move from ad hoc founder stage sales to operationalizing that process and getting more and more people on board selling a real product. And that's really helping me to get uh, to, to wrap my mind around that. That answer touched on my next and final question just a bit, but I'm going to ask it anyways. 
any blogs or, or podcasts that you religiously follow? Nothing related to uh, to business in this case. My favorite uh, blog is Rock Paper Shotgun. Uh, it's a UK-based gaming blog. And um, especially if you, if you have kids and a startup, you don't play computer games as much anymore. So I, I read it as sort of a vicarious pleasure, uh, just seeing what nice things are out there that I'm not indulging in at the moment. And now that you've been on the Startup Circle podcast, GJ, I hope to, to make your, your list and I hope to see you on our list of followers and subscribers. I'll do that. It's been a pleasure chatting. Um, for all those who want to know more about Custos, tell us where we can find you. Uh, so our website, uh, website is custostech.com. That's C-U-S-T-O-S-T-E-C-H, custostech.com. Uh, or you can follow us on, on Twitter at, at custostech. Or you can come and visit us. We're in Stellenbosch in the launch lab just across the, the CSIR and we love seeing visitors and, and showing people around. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, a South African business, South African products that's taking their solution abroad and found products as well as investment in American markets. Absolutely brilliant. Another entrepreneur sharing the importance of an MVP and what that did for his business as well as investment and the different levels of risk adversity between South African investors and American investors. That's all from our side. If you liked what you heard, be sure to like and subscribe to stay up to date with future content. Take a look at our website to see what's been done before. You can find that at www.rencraft.io podcast. Until next time, goodbye.